if you're our guest today, we, um, well, we began a series a year ago, and we spent the fall just looking at the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, and then decided that we would pause that series and come back this fall, and we'll see how far we get. And so we're picking up in the book of Revelation just um, somewhat coincidentally when uh, a lot of the Christian world has seemingly gone mad over trying to say that all that's happening is fulfillment of these things and that thing, and it tells us when Jesus is coming back. And my biggest premise, even though maybe it isn't the biggest premise of the book, it is my biggest premise, is that the book of Revelation isn't about that. Uh, and so we're going to explore what it is about, and I, I say that might be my biggest premise only because we have to get that out of the way so we can actually hear what the book is about, and uh, so that's an important, uh, important thing to do. So uh, the title of our series is The Revelation of Jesus Christ, um, which is the first words of the book, The Apocalypse of Jesus Christ, Worship and Witness in a Winner-Takes-All World. Worship and Witness in a Winner-Takes-All World, and today my kind of sub-theme within that series is uh, Exodus, the sequel. And um, I think as we get through uh, today's message, you'll begin to see that. Of course, this really, I think, will be a theme throughout the book, because the whole book is, in a lot of ways, Exodus, the sequel. And when we see that and understand it, it helps open the book up to us so that it might make more sense to us. So, uh, if you would begin reading with me in Revelation chapter 4, I'm going to read all of chapter 4 and 5. So if you're not used to hearing a lot of Bible read, uh, at least they're short chapters, but uh, uh, hang in there because it's meant to be heard in, in a sitting. Really, the whole book, um, is it's really good to listen to. So, Revelation 4 and 5, I'll be reading from the New International Version. After this, John writes, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the Voice I had heard first, or first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. And if you don't remember from chapter 1 that, who that voice was, that was Jesus. So it's Jesus speaking to him. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, with writing on both sides, and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. 
The Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and living and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. They were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, open our hearts to understand. Open our minds to perceive the truth. Lord, uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Whether it's Charlton Heston's The Ten Commandments or DreamWorks' uh, The Prince of Egypt with Val Kilmer's voice for Moses, most of us are at least vaguely familiar with the story of Israel's deliverance out of Egyptian slavery so that they might worship God and serve Him as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Many themes from the Exodus story carry forward into Revelation. Today I'm going to highlight three of those, though there are many others. But the first theme I want to draw our attention to from the book of Exodus is God's mocking of human hubris that exalts itself to the place of God. God, through the plagues that He brought upon Egypt mocked the gods of the Egyptians, the gods that Pharaoh trusted in. And each one, and we're not going to take the time here, but each one of the plagues addresses one of the Egyptian gods and shows how powerless those gods are. So God's mocking of human hubris. The second theme that we want to draw our attention to is God, that God delivers people so that they will be free to worship him. And the third theme is the lamb slain in order to protect the people from judgment. The lamb slain. Now, there are so many Old Testament uh, themes brought forward to Revelation. As we noted last week, the key to understanding this book is not current events, but it's in the Old Testament first and foremost, and of course in the culture at the time in which it was written. Uh, The Exodus theme, I would say, is probably the most important Old Testament theme to understanding the book. Of Revelation, and which is why all the other themes from the prophets come in, because those prophets were speaking about the second Exodus, the coming Exodus, the, the, the remaking of God's people, and this book carries that theme into it. We ended last week noting how this throne room, this throne that we see in chapter 4, we read chapter 4 last week, um, that, that, that it's resembled and yet surpassed in significant ways the descriptions of Caesar's throne uh, at that time. And the gods which, with which they associated, the Caesars, the, the, the emperors throughout time, associated themselves. Um, we are at least subconsciously aware of the power of political symbolism. And symbolism is vitally important in the book of Revelation. We're not used to just hearing symbols. We're used to seeing symbols. But they did not have graphic works or graphic artists departments in what they had. I mean, there was a lot of words that were being said. But they did have statues and icons. And so imagery was important to them. And they they saw it. They understood it. But just to give you an example of how uh, much 
symbolism affects us even at a subconscious level. I'm going to show you some symbols. The first one, well, it's a red flag with white circle. Let's see if we can get that up there. There we go. You might recognize that symbol filled with a broken cross. It's swastika. And it immediately conjures, I even heard it in the audience, an emotional response toward Hitler and the Holocaust. Usually a negative response, I hope, uh, by all here. The next one, well, you've got white robes and coned hats with holes for the eyes. Usually brings about a sense of putrefying injustice. The third one I'm going to show, for some, the Confederate flag represents oppressive slavery. For others, it represents an oppressive federal government that won't let them own slaves. Um, yeah, um, so, so those things bring about symbolism. Now, people also respond emotionally rather than rationally. They just, it's just an effect. The symbolism affects them uh, when someone won't stand for the singing of the national anthem. You know, hence the flag. It, it, it draws out emotion in people because symbolism is powerful. I mean, I can't mention today just an example of how powerful symbolism is. I would say for at least most people in this audience, the word Watergate immediately brings back political implications. Not a salad, which involves pistachios and jello, but <laughs> political issues, right? So, so, so uh, it's just because there's so much that that symbol represents to us as people today. Well, the book of Revelation is filled with powerful symbols from the first century Roman Empire and from Scripture. And to understand the book, we must pay attention to them. Again, this book is not about charting a map of when Jesus is going to return, what the end times are going to look like. No, this book is about how we navigate the world as the people of God in an evil place. And it is for us today. It was for them that day. And the way we understand what it is saying to us today is to understand what it was saying to them that day, just like any other book of the Bible, and we bring it forward to our day. At its simplest level, the vision that, that John receives, not just the chapters we read today, but this whole book, really, this vision declares that Caesar's evil throne is puny compared to God's throne. In stark contrast to the cult of emperor worship is the glorious worship of God by everything in creation, things seen and things unseen forever and ever. Amen. In a world in which it is costly to not bow one's knee to the idols of the age, a vision of heaven's throne is essential in order to have the patient endurance required to overcome. Now, the Laodiceans may not have known that it was costly, but the church in Sardis did. You see, the faithful churches, they, they bore the cost. They understood that it took patient endurance. Some of them maybe not so much because they were giving in. It wasn't so much a thing for them. And when we hear amen at the various places in this book, it's not merely a nice ending to a prayer. It's the declaration that all these things are true. And that the people are going to live in light of that reality. And just a reminder again from last week. In chapters 2 and 3, what we covered last fall, John spoke of how things looked from an earthly perspective. They were full of trouble. The people lived, as chapter 2 points out, where Satan has his throne. But now in chapter 4, a door into the spiritual realm is open for John. And he will be allowed to see things from a heavenly perspective where God has his throne. Okay, he's, he's, a realm has opened up, a door has opened. He comes to heaven and he sees things from a different angle, from a different place. It wasn't a time portal, as some would suggest, as, as if he traveled so many thousands of years to a different time. It's just a change of sphere from the, the, the world below to the world above. We're going to explore our text today under three headings. Lampooning by God, liturgy of the universe, and lamb slain. Let's begin under that first one, lampooning by God. Those of my generation, uh, which I realize is old, but anyway, those of my generation remember National Lampoon, a, a magazine initially that became much more, uh, producing movies and the like, mocking political officials and culture at large. It was the stage on which John Belushi, Chevy Chase, Gilda Radner, you know, Rosanna, Rosanna, Dana, 
uh, and many more became known, and they effectively, though not directly, spawned Saturday Night Live. National Lampoon itself grew out of Harvard Lampoon, which began in 1876 with the goal of deflating the egos of academia through humor. (laughs) National Lampoon worked to deflate the ego of politicians and just about everything in culture at large, including the family vacation. (laughs) Revelation Lampoon's the cult of emperor worship in John's day. It mocks the very power structure of its day. It's hard to capture the meaning of the symbols without recognizing what what it is saying about the empire's story of power and progress. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, is actually shown for the horror that it really was in this book. Psalm 2 pictures the cosmic battle between the rulers of this world and God and His Son, His Messiah, And there we learn that God laughs at those kings because the kings of this world and their rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed one, His Christ. But then it goes on to say, but God laughs. God laughs. The book of Revelation is at times God laughing at the power structures of this world. And we have to see that. And He he does it, this sort of, it's very satirical because He does it very subtly. He just describes His throne. But they all understood the comparison. His throne made their thrones a joke. An absolute joke. And so he's laying these things out to show what's really going on. And when we get later in the book and we find out what this beast is riding on, it's the insult of all insults. And so we have to recognize that there's an aspect of God's laughter, God mocking in a sense, the powers of this world that place themselves in the position of God. So God lampoons the, the, the Roman uh, emperors that place themselves in the position of God, much as we see in Psalm 2, it taking place. Our, our text brings forward a theme from Exodus where God mocks the gods of Egypt and their king one by one through the ten plagues. The revelation plagues will be used uh, again, and, and, and it, you know, the, we'll see plagues as we go through this. But this time the king is Caesar rather than Pharaoh. Each scene is best understood when the allusions to Caesar's throne and the temples established for his worship are also kept in mind. When we understand what these things meant to the first audience, the people of John's day, we will better be able to understand what they mean for us today. They do mean something for us today. But it's vital that we understand what they meant to the first audience if we're going to then understand what they mean to us today, just like any other book of the Bible. Now, there's some question by by some that whether this scene in chapter 4 and 5 is a heavenly temple scene or merely a royal throne room scene. And the answer to the question is, yes, it is. In, In the ancient world, such a distinction would have been incomprehensible. They would not have been able to comprehend a You know, we talk about separation of church and state, religion and politics. In their world, how would you separate politics and religion since we worship the ruler? I mean, it just... The ruler was the son of God. So Jesus being the son of God was a claim to his actually being the ruler. And there are so many aspects of our New Testaments that have to be understood through that lens to really see what the messaging is about. And so they, they, they wouldn't have been able to distinguish. The king's throne was, in effect, a temple. And the Jews understood that the temple, the one they built in Jerusalem on Mount Zion, that that was, in fact, where God had his throne, and he ruled his people from that temple. So it was a throne room, yes, and a temple, yes, a place of worship and a place of rule. It was both in one at the same time. And so, yes, that's what we're seeing here. Later, we'll see uh, aspects of this throne room, such as an altar in front of the throne that prove that it's a temple and and, and so off. So we'll we'll see those things. Uh, The the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant being described there. Now, it is the heavenly temple. It's the one that replaces, you know, in 70 AD, the earthly temple was destroyed. So now, John, and probably, I mean, I accept the, the later dating of Revelation, I think there's just too much pointing in that direction, is in the 90s, maybe about 96. 
But, but John is describing a heavenly temple, uh, the, the real temple after which the earthly one was made. Uh, the, the images making up this heavenly scene are so outrageously glorious that any earthly worship scene would seem laughable in comparison. As the authors of Unveiling Empire, reading Revelation then and now, as they note, quote, this superior glory was no easy task. For both imperial and local cult celebrations pulled out all the stops in drawing their audience in, into their assertions of divine authority. And yet, what John describes almost point by point mocks them because it's that much greater than anything they did for their uh, emperors. The 24 elders here stand in contrast to the white-robed, golden-crowned priests worshiping and celebrating the victory of the emperor in the cities of the churches of Asia. Whoever these 24 elders are, they are more numerous and more glorious than the priests or the Roman senators that surround Caesar's throne or celebrate his victory at the cultic temples. Caesar can't keep up. Now, I say whoever they are because there are different opinions on who they are. Majority of scholars believe them to represent, one way or another, the twelve tribes of Israel and the twelve apostles of the Lamb. But identifying who they are is not all that important to the message of the book. I mean, in fact, I think sometimes we do better not trying to identify too many specifics about all the things listed, but to see what they represented symbolically to the people. It's like the flag. When I showed the United States flag, we, we thought our country, when, when somebody won't you know, when they won't sing, they won't stand for the singing of the national anthem, what bothers us isn't, well, okay, the 50 stars represent the 50 states, the 13 strikes. We, we don't go there, right? That, that isn't the point. The point is what it represents, and we start talking about people dying and people this, and it's an emotional thing. When we start looking at the details in Revelation and try to get too specific, like, it begins to be like, well, there are 50 stars, and they represent the 50 states, and then there are 13 stripes, and that's the colony, and they're red and white, and on and on and on we begin to miss the point. And so, again, do I think they're the t- representative of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the Lamb? Yeah, I do. Can I be wrong? Sure. <laughs> Not going to really affect my take on the book one way or the other. Okay. Um, since Rome is Babylon in Revelation, and we'll see that later in the book, It's also quite appropriate that in John's vision, the heavenly throne is surrounded by four earthly creatures, which were present for Ezekiel. That in Ezekiel, remember, he was during the time of the exile to Babylon, but these creatures represent the Babylonian creatures of the zodiac in their astrology, each representing a season and also the elements of the earth as they viewed the elements of the world. So you had a lion or Leo which represented spring and fire. You had a bull or an ox, Taurus, which represented summer and then the earth itself and the human face, Scorpio, fall, water, the eagle, Pegasus, winter, air. What's the point of all that symbolism? Well, again, going into their world, we see that these elements or seasons, creation itself, merely serve the purpose of God and His throne. The very stars that some believe dictated things were just things that were around God's throne. They weren't in control. God is in control. John's vision is reminiscent of Isaiah's mockery of the idols of the nations. You know, in in Isaiah, it's, what is it, 42, 3, 4, 5 through 48. All through there, in, in the 40s, let's just say. You know, there are repeatedly... Isaiah is mocking the idols of the nation. You know, you find a tree, you cut off a limb, you burn part of it, you turn one of, part of it into an idol, and you put it on a cart. It can't hold itself up. I mean, he goes on and on in this sort of mockery uh, of these idols. And John's vision, in a lot of ways, mocks the idols of the nations by showing how subject they are to God and his throne. Emperor Domitian, who was the emperor at the time that this book was written, at least most likely the time it was written, He ascribed to himself the title Savior of the World and Our Lord and Our God, both of which John's Gospel attributes to Jesus Christ. Likewise, when the elders here in our text lay their crowns before the throne, in chapter, uh, uh, I believe it's 5 and verse 11, 
you are worthy, our Lord and God. Actually, it's chapter 4 and verse 11. You are worthy, our Lord and God. Well, he's taking that title that Domitian, the emperor, ascribed to himself, and he's giving it to God. And in light of the scene that's before them, Domitian is really but a tiny God, if you will, in comparison to the God that is pictured in these verses. So what does that say to us today? You see, we may not have emperor worship in the same way they did, but I think we have it in different ways. I'm participating with a a group of about 12 people from across the country in different parts of the country. We're all reading through a book called Authentic Engagement. Uh, It's a worthwhile read, to be sure. And we're discussing it monthly. So we get on a Zoom call once a month, and we we have a discussion about what we've been reading and and dialoguing through it. Um, The the moderator is Mark Ryan, and he's a professor and the director of the Francis Schaeffer Institute at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. Um, The other participants are pastors, Christians in places of political power, a teacher at a college prep school, a mom, missionaries. I mean, it's a a wide variety of people. Um, Mark Ryan is from Australia, and he he lived in the UK as well. He recently said the following, uh, is really in passing, but about American politics. And I I wrote it down when he said it. I thought that's, that's worth noting. He said, politics, speaking of here in America are far more messianic here. Politics are far more, referring to his experience elsewhere. In other words, Americans have a tendency to look at our politicians to provide, to provide what we as believers are, are supposed to think that only Christ and his kingdom can bring. In other words, what he's really perceiving is that Americans tend to have an idolatry of their politics. See, when we're, when we're expecting from our political leaders what only Christ and his kingdom can give, that's idolatrous. Now, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying some guy that happens to be not from here noticed it. And you, you know, think of it what you want. <laughs> it's not unusual for American Christians to divide over polit- perceived political differences despite Christ dying on the cross to make us one. It is not unusual for Christians to treat others poorly who have different political positions. I pay attention to what goes on on Facebook. (laughs) It's idolatry. It's emperor worship of our own modern sort. It's the forsaking of the true Messiah for a false one. Emperor worship also manifests when rulers and authorities of this world exalt themselves above both God and others. It might well be said that many in the church took the mark of the beast when they aligned themselves with Babylon's trading of slaves in order to prosper. You see, the mark of the beast isn't a credit card thingy that's going to happen at some point in the future. It's our own selling of our souls for the sake of profit and so many other things. We'll get to that when we get there in the book of Revelation. But it's a whole lot more subtle than we might otherwise perceive. God bless you. Now it leads to the second point, liturgy surrounding God. Hebrews 12 describes the reality of what we are doing when we gather as the people of God in worship. There we read, You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, John is seeing that same heavenly reality, but his vision expands and even adjusts the symbolism for the need. John's vision is of the heavenly temple on a heavenly Zion in a heavenly Jerusalem. John has stepped through a door and now sees things which can only be perceived from heaven's perspective. In other words, what can only be seen by faith. The scene that John describes is liturgical, which means that it describes and draws us into worship. It is about our worship. 
the persecuted church, the church tempted to follow the teachings of the Nicolaitans or to be seduced by Jezebel. Again, I'm referring to chapters 2 and 3. The church caught up in its affluence that needs to hear Jesus standing at the door knocking so that it might open the door and let him in. Can you imagine a church that hasn't let Jesus in the door? As they hear this, those people, those kinds of believers are drawn into worship. They too are drawn to add their amen to the heavenly anthem. They, who thought that their wealth was everything they needed, like the the Laodiceans, realize that the wealth of God's throne in His heavenly place so far exceeds anything that this earth could offer. And they're drawn to worship. Note the rounds of worship in just our text. And it goes on beyond our text, as we'll see as we go through the book. But each of the four living creatures, those who have eyes covering them completely. In other words, they see everything. They don't miss a thing. They can see clearly. With all those eyes, they see rather clearly. In in chapter 4, verse 8, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And so if we are able to see as clearly as they are, we too would join in. So by faith we do join in through their eyes and add our praise. Every time this happens, the 24 elders join in, laying their crowns before him, saying, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. That was a common symbol of their day for a uh, conquered king to take his crown off and lay it at the feet of the one who had conquered uh, him, symbolizing his submission. And that's what's happening here. All power, all glory, all praise belong to the one on the throne. One author says, quote, Worship is shown to be primarily a political act. One worships whomever or whatever one affirms as possessing true power to affect people's lives. True power to affect people's lives. The central currency of politics in all ages. Who do we believe has true power? to affect people's lives. That's who we worship. And if we don't think that is Christ, that he's only relegated to Sunday into this sort of realm of our life that's really not public, then we're worshiping something else and not him. He should be the one who transforms our lives and determines how we live. Then again, when the Lamb is revealed, they fall down and Uh, holding up the prayers of the saints, they say you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation, but you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then the innumerable company of angels say, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And finally, all creation, and this is only finally with the text we read, it goes beyond again, All creation in unison sings, try this Caesar, get all creation in unison to sing to you, ain't going to happen. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The other thing we should notice is that there's something very Jewish going on in the scene. Something that I think ought to be at least very Christian too, but we've often not taught much about this. But I think we, we, we need to focus some here. In, in chapter 5, verse 8, we are told that they fall down before the Lamb and the one who is on the throne, and the elders are holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. You ever stop and ask yourself the question, well, what was the content of those prayers? What was the content? What, what kind of prayers were the saints praying? Guess what? We're told. We're actually told what they were praying. It's in chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. I haven't read, it's not part of our text, but I'm jumping ahead. Allow me. There, when the fifth seal is open, John sees under the altar the souls of those who had been slain, like the Lamb, because of the word of God and their faithful testimony. And we, we find out in chapter 8 that these are the very prayers that are in these bowls, but, but here we find out what the prayers are. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? That's a lament. How long, O Lord? Like about half the Psalms, usually not used in church, by the way, but maybe ought to be. 
since they match up to our lives a lot more than some of the others, at least the way we understand them. It, it actually is a lament, but it's also, it combines two kinds of psalms, sometimes categorized together both under lament, and that's fine, I guess. But the other subcategory or category is imprecatory psalms. Now, you might say, what's imprecatory psalm mean? Well, it actually means psalms that call curses on people. They're the ones that never make it into the lectionary for those churches that preach through, you know, certain verses of Scripture, you know, never make it. Not going there. You know, and, and like in our kind of tradition where people preach things that like you're preaching through books, you know, the Psalms, it's real easy to skip over those. We're going to do 20 of the Psalms and we'll, we'll easily skip, you know, the imprecatory ones. Why? Because nobody wants to talk about our enemy's children being dashed against a rock. And I get that. Right? And so what do we do with this? But see, notice here, there's not only how long, O Lord, lament, holy and true, but until you judge. It's a cry for vengeance, that God would bring vengeance. And, and the nature of this prayer is actually reflective of the nature of the book. So we better understand what's going on with the nature of the prayer so we can understand the nature of the book. You see, Jews cried out to God to destroy their enemies. But in doing so, what were they doing? They were entrusting judgment to God and not taking it themselves. See, they said, you kill my enemies. Which is another way of saying, I'm not going to do it. You're going to have to do it. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2 that Jesus, on the cross, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. We see that, a glimpse of that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my groaning? You see, we, we have prayers of lament. Like, God, why are you managing the universe this way? How long? Or Psalm, was it 44? Could you get off your duff and do something? It's my summary, but pretty well covers it. There's lament. Imagine you're the suffering Christian that's receiving this book. Imagine your father, your brother, your uncle was killed. Imagine you are suffering because you don't have enough food on the table because your parents are Christians and they're not willing to to go and worship the emperor in order to to get in with the business crowd. How long, O Lord? And there's every every human i mean people that don't understand vengeance have probably never suffered too terribly at the hands of others there is a natural orientation to want vengeance for injustice done and the christian is taught throughout scripture to bring that to god and sometime with some of the worst words you could imagine but if we can't say them to god when we're thinking them anyway We're only fooling ourselves. We're certainly not fooling Him. And to be able to express them to God and leave them there with Him allows us to walk away and forgive our enemies. That's what's going on under the altar with these martyrs. I was reading devotionally this week a, a sermon rooted in the 145th Psalm, which, which isn't a lament or an imprecation. It's actually a declaration of God's great rule. It begins, Every day I will praise you, and speaks of how worthy God is of praise, like our text in Revelation does. It goes on to declare, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations, which again, sounds familiar to some of what we read in this book. The preacher of that particular sermon points out that the devout Jews recited this psalm daily despite the fact that during most of their history there was no evidence that his kingdom was winning anything. First century Jews, for example, recited this psalm in 70 AD when Vespasian killed their priests, destroyed their temple, and erected a, 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 a temple in honor of Jupiter in its place. Jews in Auschwitz recited it in the face of suffering. And the author makes this comment. Think about it. A people noteworthy chiefly for their bad political luck 
here proclaim the absolute dominion of their God over all times and circumstances. This is an extraordinary thing, bespeaking either mass delusion, which is surely how the builders of Babel would have judged it, or else an unusually deep understanding of the nature of reality, the kind of fresh perception that comes to us only when God speaks. Amen. Okay, I'll read it again. Think about it. A people noteworthy chiefly for their bad political luck, that's Israel, spent most of their time in, you know, enslaved by, whether it was Babylonians, Romans, you name it, Philistines when they had their own rule. People chiefly, noteworthy chiefly for their bad political luck, here proclaim, in Psalm 145, the absolute dominion of their God over all times and circumstances. That's extraordinary. Be speaking either mass delusion, okay? in other words, what, they must be crazy, or else an unusually deep understanding of the nature of reality, the kind of fresh perception that comes to us only when God speaks. In other words, when we see by faith, Amen? what is really happening in the world. Revelation declares the reign of God by a people suffering at the hands of humans who think they are gods. There's an imprecatory aspect to Revelation in which we cry out for God to judge the wicked, but in doing so, we are committing to not judging them ourselves. Revelation is a text that tells the suffering Christian in a world that doesn't make sense that God is still going to win We must be patient and endure and not forsake the call to follow the slain lamb. Amen and amen. And that leads to the final point. And you're thinking I'm out of time. And I am, but I'm going to get get this point. It's short. The lamb of God. And we'll keep covering this one over and over throughout the book. The Old Testament scene that John's vision most clearly parallels is Daniel 7. There, Daniel has a dream vision in which he sees four great beasts that come up out of the sea. Chaos. (laughs) And each of the four were carnivorous, representing empires that lived on the flesh and blood of the people. Starting, of course, with Babylon, one at his time, and it ends with the Roman Empire, the fourth beast. The most fearsome and destructive of them all was that Roman Empire, that fourth one. While Daniel ponders this, thrones were set in place. This is in Daniel 7. And the Ancient of Days takes his seat. The description makes clear that this is the heavenly throne room. Then as Daniel watches, one like a son of man comes. So that was God's answer in Daniel 7 to the vicious beasts of the world, one like a son of man. It's it's not overly impressive. Like, couldn't you give us something powerful and strong and mean and, you know, like, I mean, something bigger than the Son of Man? But his kingdom was like that rock that becomes a great mountain as the chapter ends. In Revelation, it's a similar story, but there's an update. God's answer to the beast of the Roman Empire that was persecuting the church was not like a Son of Man in our scene that we read today. No, now it's like a lamb looking as if it had been murdered, but somehow alive. Slain, the word there, lamb slain, is not the word for sacrificial death like we might expect. It refers to the violence of his death. The same kind of death as the martyrs under the altar had. They were also slain. It was horrific. It's interesting The cross, in a book full of symbols, the cross is not mentioned anywhere in Revelation. I'm not saying it's not implied or inferred or, you know, obviously a lamb slain, you know, (laughs) there's the cross. But there's no word, the cross. There's no mention of that. I think in part because the cross wasn't used as a symbol for Christian art, in a sense, until about the 4th century. It's the earliest we know of. Um, not when they were a suffering church, because it was just such a gruesome symbol of what the enemy did to them, Um, but later. um, The idea of the lamb here is captured from the Exodus story. 
as well. There, of course, they had to, on, on the, the last plague, when the, the firstborn was going to be killed, they had to slaughter a lamb and put it on the blood on the doorpost so, so that they would be delivered and the angel of death would pass over them. So here we have the lamb, but there's a contrast. In Exodus, God took the firstborn of Egypt and spared the firstborn of his people if they had the lamb's blood. In Revelation, it is God's firstborn, the man-child of chapter 12, who is the lamb slain to rescue peoples from every nation, tribe, and tongue. It's a very different sort of thing, yet the symbolism is there. The lamb is God's way to victory. And this is an important point we have to see throughout the book. So I'm introducing it here, but it will keep coming up. And so I'm, I'm kind of introducing something that builds to the full sense as we go through it. But since no one is able to open the scroll, which evidently reveals God's purpose and plan in history, John is weeping. In other words, if, if no one opens it, we'll never know what God's purpose in history is. We need to know. He's interrupted by one of the 24 elders who says, See! Look! The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed. He is able. That sounds appropriate. We need a ferocious lion to come to our aid. Of course. John turns to see what he's describing, but he doesn't see a lion. Actually, he sees instead a lamb. Not just a lamb, but one looking as if it has been murdered violently. Now, the Christian reader knows that it's the dragon who killed him, and we learn that later in the book, in effect, but that he's been raised. So we have a lamb slain. We soon have martyrs slain for their testimony. But they are also said to have triumphed, just like the lamb is said to have triumphed. And later in the climactic scene of the book, we have the rider of a white horse who defeats the beast. We discover that his bloody robe is not stained with the blood of his enemies, but it's been dipped in blood, no doubt his own blood, the blood of the lamb, which turns out to be him. In other words, his ways don't change. He's not putting on an act. It's how he really is. He will conquer through his self-sacrificial ways. Ways which we don't like, but clearly the ways which the church in John's day was having to live. Unless, of course, they wanted to worship the beast. As Dana Harris, professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, wrote, quote, The power and strength political, military, or other, of a lion is not what is needed to defeat evil kings or kingdoms. Instead, it is the surprising vulnerability and weakness of a lamb who was slaughtered and resurrected that vanquishes evil and ushers in the new creation. Amen. At the end of the day, Revelation calls us to forsake the ways of the dragon and pursue the way of the lamb. But that will require patient endurance on the part of the saints, which is the only way to overcome. Just a couple of comments in closing. As Americans, we love success. The church in America loves success. We are addicted to it. To a church addicted to success, the message of Revelation surely seems like it is for another place in another time. But that only goes to show how much we need to hear its message. It's calling us away from the ways of power to the ways of humility. As any football coach tells his offensive line, the key to pushing the line, the key to winning that battle at the line of scrimmage is to stay low. If you stand too tall, you lose. Now, I've never played offensive line or any football other than tag, you know, flag or tag in the front yard with my friends. So I don't know much about that. But I do know that the church has gotten way too used to standing tall and doesn't like staying low. But according to the book of Revelation, staying low is essential for the church as well. Humility is the way of the Lamb, and it is essential. Scott Peck, who's a therapist, in the preface to his best-selling book, The Road Less Traveled, he notes that the book is filled with case studies and that the brevity of how they are presented in a book might be deceiving. It might give the impression, he notes, that change is not gained over a long process of drama and clarity. 
He notes that in the interest of readability, accounts of the lengthy periods of confusion and frustration inherent in most therapy have been omitted from these case descriptions. In other words, he gives you a bunch of examples that might make it sound like this was easy to accomplish. And it was anything but that. Most Christians want to overcome. Most want to experience the victory of God. Sadly, few realize that it requires long periods of patient endurance. We often read testimonies or biographies, but make the mistake of thinking that life is more of the victory than the enduring. But in real life, it's the enduring that wins the day. We all get it that we follow Jesus to the cross. That's what we're supposed to do. But most of us think resurrection comes about 30 minutes into the suffering. That's just not the case. And it certainly wasn't the case for the church to whom John was writing this book. And if we're going to understand its message, we have to get that point too. The way of the Lamb is a difficult path, but once our eyes are open and we see what is really true, we will endure because we have no other real choice. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, When I say the church in America is addicted to success, I'm not talking about some other church. I'm talking about us. This church is filled with people who've been affected by this same culture. We live and breathe and it's, we're there. And even when we work hard not to be addicted to success... We will find ourselves being drawn in unexpectedly. Lord, help us to comprehend the ways of the Lamb and to be a people who are willing to patiently endure and to do things your way because the moment... Love is patient. That's the first thing said about love. The moment we are in a hurry, we stop loving. Help us to remember that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.